We do thank you for the opportunity, the privilege, as I know many, many, even in our own country today, do not have the privilege of being together. For various and sundry reasons, Father, they are at home, many who are afraid. So, Lord, we do not take for granted the fact that we can be here together with each other. I thank you so much for this opportunity. I pray it would not be wasted. I pray your word would go forth clearly and effectively from my mouth and give us ears to hear and hearts that understand. In Jesus' name, amen. So in the summer of 2001, I was about a year removed from graduating from high school. But if I'm honest, at that summer, I was pretty aimless. I, didn't, uh, I, I had made some decisions that had been good decisions. What partly was uh, I had pulled out of the university I was attending. And I had made some decisions that were probably not so great decisions. But there I was at the beginning of the summer of 2001, really just not knowing what to do next. Well, I got a new job, and there I met a student from Northland, where I ended up attending Bible college. What got my uh, interest was they had aim, and they had purpose, and, and, and they were so uh, ready to go and serve the Lord as a missionary to Africa. Well, when the summer ended, they had to go back to Northland. I went back to work, because I wasn't ready to leave at that point yet. But something inside me had changed. I had talked a lot about becoming a pastor, mentioned it in my yearbook for my senior year. I want to be a pastor. I'd said it to several people in my youth group. But I was bound and determined at that point. I set my face in the direction of becoming a pastor. That fall, I had the opportunity to go see my friend at Northland. And when I got there, the Lord assured me this was the place to go. And so I set my face to go to Northland. And so what that means is, is I went back home. I worked every possible shift that I could. I counted every dollar that I could make up in some way or another. I had to pay off a lot of debt that I had accrued having gone previously again to that university. But I worked very, very hard. And I was very, very focused to go to Northland. So much so that there were people around me who were quite disturbed. First person really to come to me and talk about it was my boss. You see, they had hired me to come and help manage a restaurant, and they uh, and now they were hearing that I, less than a year after hiring me, I was ready to go to Bible college. And so he says to me that, you know what, if you stick around, I'm sure we can find a way to get you a promotion, get you a raise. And I said, nope, I'm headed to Northland. I even had family members who sat me down. One day I came home from work. My sister sat me down. She's like, Tim, I need to talk to you. See, my sister never sits me down to talk to me. She says hi to me, and she goes along her way. And so, she's, and so I knew something was up, and she sat down. She said, you sure this is what you want to do? This, you sure this is where you want to go? And even my friend who was at Northland, we would speak on the phone every once in a while, would say to me, I'm not sure that you're ready to come here for the right reason. But I had set my face to Northland. Obviously, I stand here this morning having done what I had set out to do. I went to Northland for four years, got my degree, and decided and became a pastor. And here I am today. Unfortunately, I have to share with you that the friend that encouraged me and became kind of the inspiration to go do what I wanted or what I was supposed to do is not a missionary in Africa and is, in fact, really not walking with the Lord at all. As I mentioned last week, I want to take some time leading up to Easter 
to kind of prepare ourselves for it. Uh, And I want to do that by going to some of the parables of Jesus. Now, a parable can be anything from a story that Jesus tells that has a spiritual truth to it. Or as we saw last week, just an image. Last week he used the image of bread. Here in our text this morning, as you heard Valerie read, we have several of these images. So our text this morning, you see, starts in verse 57, goes to verse 62. Well, that's a part of the beginning of a very long section in Luke. A section that actually goes all the way back and begins in verse 51, where you see the phrase, Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. Luke will use that phrase again in the book of Acts to describe the Apostle Paul. When the Apostle Paul set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now that phrase is is to help us understand, first of all, why when Jesus goes to Samaria, they don't invite, they don't show him any hospitality. They knew he had set his face to Jerusalem. And so they knew he wasn't sticking around. And so there was no welcome parade. There was nobody out there waiting for him to show up. That offended the disciples quite a bit. It is also why we're told at the beginning of chapter 10, he sends all of them out to go and preach the gospel of the kingdom. Because he had set his face to Jerusalem, time was coming to a close, time of his earthly ministry was coming to a close, and so the gospel needed to be preached far and wide. But that phrase is also supposed to help us understand the images that he uses in our text from verse 57 to verse 62. Now one of the things I want to point out to you, Jesus here you see in the text talks to three different people. And yet Luke doesn't tell us anything about how they responded. We don't know if after the the proverb or the parable that Jesus gives to them that they agree. We don't know if they argued with him. They don't know. We don't know if they just went away. Really don't know anything. So clearly the intention that Luke has here is for us the reader to put ourselves in this position and ask ourselves the question How would we respond? Jesus has set his face towards Jerusalem. Jesus is saying to these three people, that means you too must set your face toward what God is calling you to do, whether you be a wife or a husband, a child, a parent, and so on. Three people, each given an opportunity to follow Jesus, and Jesus responds with the cost of following him. So three points for you this morning. First of all, A love of comfort, number one, a love of comfort will keep you from faithfully following Jesus. A love of comfort will keep you from faithfully following Jesus. Now this first person comes to him, you see in verse 57, it came to pass as they went along the way, meaning as they were walking, a certain man came up to him and said, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. This is a bold pronouncement. This guy is all manner of positive. He's got enthusiasm. Lord, I'm excited to follow you. I'm committed to following you wherever you go. That's interesting because the text has told us he had set his face to Jerusalem. He's going to go there. He's going to die. He's going to be crucified. His his people are going to be scattered. This guy, he's enthusiastic. He's ready to go. I'm going to go where you go. I'm going to be there. I'm all all about it. I'm, I'm going to do what I need to do. And I see a lot of that from Christians when times come like we have with this virus. A lot of people saying, you know what? I'm just going to trust the Lord. 
I'm just going to go with him. I'm going to go with whatever he brings. And I'm not going to panic. And I'm not going to go out and buy all sorts of hand sanitizer. But the idea here is that idea. He says, look, I, I know things that you're headed toward Jerusalem. But I, I'm going to go with you. But Jesus responds to him. He says, look, foxes have holes. Birds have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He basically brings up the fact, the three images are pretty obvious. The fox, when he is scared, he has a hole to run to and be safe. A bird with their nest has a place to live and sleep and raise their young that is far from trouble. And of course, the image of placing your head is, of course, a a reference to a place of hospitality. And the idea here is that Jesus is declaring himself homeless. There is no hole to run to. There is no nest to get away in. There is no place of hospitality. He's saying to this guy, there are going to be battles that you are going to have to fight where there's going to be no retreat. There are going to be work that is going to have to be done and it's going to have to be done with no relief from the hot sun. There are going to be marathons you're going to have to run and you have no assurance anybody's going to be waiting there with a glass of water. So what is, what is Jesus doing? This guy shows up. He's enthusiastic. So Jesus' response, what's the intention of this response? It is, in fact, to give him every reason to doubt, every reason to quit, every reason to question. Why would Jesus do that? Let me illustrate it this way. I've read a lot of books on World War II. A lot of books about hometown men who heard about the bombing of Pearl Harbor and were quick the next day to go line up and sign up to go and join the armed forces. They were ready to shoot Nazis and defeat the Japanese. Now, nobody told them they were going to come home shell-shocked. Nobody talked about the fact that they may come home missing limbs or, or they, they, they knew they might die, but they didn't know they might come home, or nobody talked about the fact that they might come home, and they will have experienced things that they will have nobody to talk to about. Would they have walked away if they knew what was coming? It's easy to die. It's not easy to be uncomfortable. And many stories I read where men went AWOL and even deserted their company in the midst of battle. And I would ask the question, how many times in your life has your commitment to Christ wavered? And I ask it that way because I know it's happened. I know it's happened. I know that maybe perhaps you've come across administration duties for a ministry and maybe became too burdensome. I know there have been times when you have come to church and you felt like it was not profitable. You have had times where there have been unexpected seasons like marriage problems and child difficulty, losses, physical discomfort. And we love to say to each other that God is in control. And he certainly is, as you heard me say, and that is certainly comfortable. But that phrase is also very scary. You know, more often than not, we're never given the reason why. We're never given access to the reason why something has happened. And enthusiasm and positivity almost always wane. And when they do, that's when it will be decided whether or not you will follow. 
when the bumper stickers and the coffee mugs and the Christian t-shirts no longer inspire, when all the comforting and encouraging words your friends can gather up neither comfort nor encourage, that's when you will make the decision of whether or not you will follow, when the cost is going to be your comfort. Number two, number two, the second lesson here, Jesus will ask you, Jesus will ask you to follow him above all human relationships. Jesus will ask you to follow him above all human relationships. Now, the second person is unique because we see here that in verse 59, he said unto another, follow me. So this is the idea is uh, instead of them coming to Jesus and saying, I'm ready to follow you, Jesus says, I want you to follow me. This is likely just an encounter. They came along, maybe this guy had been sitting in the front row at the feeding of the 5,000. Maybe he's been following Jesus for a while. And Jesus turns to him and finally says, why don't you follow me? We don't know. We just know there's an encounter and Jesus invites him. Well, the man responds by asking, see, Lord, let me go home and bury my father. Now, this, this statement or this question or this request is not sinful. It's not unimportant. And it's obviously very personal. Now, there's really two, two trains of thought, two schools of thought as to what this man was asking. The first, most, uh, the first most popular idea is that this man knows that his father will not approve of him following Jesus. And so he's asking, Lord, let me wait until my father dies. Let me go home. I'll follow you, but let me go home first because this is going to kind of cause some disruption in our family. This might cause a difficulty in our family. So I'm going to go home, and I'm going to care for my father until he dies. And then I will come and follow you. The other school of thought is that this man's father has already died. And that this is a moment where the man is saying, look, I've got some affairs that I've got to still put in order. Things that I still have to do. And once I get that done, I will come and follow you. But the actually the phrase that the dead bury their dead is a very pure, uh, clear picture. This is in every say in every sense Jesus is saying to him skip the funeral. Don't go. Follow me. Don't go to the funeral. Now that immediately sounds very harsh. But remind yourself of something. There are groups out there like the CIA, the FBI, military intelligence, special forces, who are all asked to do this, to make a commitment to serve their country, to make a commitment to fulfill their mission, even when the death of a parent comes along. But the image is clearly meant to shake the guy up. He's trying to say, look, this human relationship you have with your father is valuable, but it is not as valuable as your relationship with me. The image is shocking, but I would tell you that I have seen a lot of this in my time of ministry. I have met multiple people who have made the decision not to follow Christ, not to follow Christ in service or in ministry because of fear of separation or distance. Here's what I mean. One of the things that impressed me when I came here to candidate as your pastor was I got a question that I had not received 
anywhere else. And this includes places that were down in Kansas that were literally where the, the, the Walmart was two hours away. That's the, the grading thing for me. How far away is the, the Walmart? And that's how I decide where to go and minister. But I went to this place in Kansas, and, and literally there was two hours away to the next Walmart, but they never asked me this question. So what question am I, asking, am I talking about? I remember sitting up here, and somebody stood up. I, I, I honestly don't remember who asked the question. And they asked me and my wife, can you serve here being so far away from family? You see, this church or somebody in this church instinctively understood the idea here. Asking me if a preoccupation with my family and them being so far away, would it, would it keep me from being fully committed to serving Christ in Maxwell, Nebraska? It was a fair question. And I think it's kind of the question that Luke is asking us to, uh, to ask ourselves. And missionaries hear this all the time. I know lots of missionaries. Every time they go to a church, somebody says, oh, I don't know if I could move to China. Oh, I don't know if I could move to Africa or Brazil and be so far away from my family. Now, I don't think this text is meant to serve as a call to the mission field. I think it's meant to serve as a call to self-examination. Is your value of Christ greater than the value of the difficulty or the painful difference there might come because of a separation with your family? How about maybe your kids or your grandkids? Would you encourage them to put distance between you and them in service to Christ? Now, we live in a day where you can almost go anywhere in the world on a 14-hour flight. You can FaceTime each other. There's almost nowhere you can go and be completely disconnected. And maybe that kind of reduces the impact of a statement like this. Because in Jesus' day, going somewhere... Meant many, many times meant days and weeks and even years before you saw someone's face or heard their voice or even received a letter. And the truth, though, is that Jesus is saying this might bring separation between you and your family. That's a cost that is a difficulty in following him. And so the question to, to ask, is he more valuable to you than even your closest family? And then number three. Number three, following Jesus means there cannot be double-mindedness. Following Jesus means there cannot be double-mindedness. Again, this last person, verse 61, another said to the Lord, I will follow thee, but first let me bid them farewell, which are at my home and at my house. Now, he's not as bold as the first guy. In fact, he comes along and saying, Lord, I would love to follow you, but I really need to go home and say, and kiss goodbye anybody who's at my house. Now, we don't know who's at his house. We don't know if it's mom and dad. We don't know if it's a wife and kids. It's very generic. He's just saying, I want to go home, and I want to kiss people goodbye. But Jesus responds, no man, having put his hand to the plow, looking back, is fit for the kingdom. Now, there's a really good chance that Jesus is borrowing an image from 1 Kings 19. If you don't know what 1 Kings 19 is, let me tell you. In that passage, the prophet Elijah comes along, finds Elisha, and says, you, follow me. And he asks Elisha, asks Elijah, if he can go home and kiss his mom and dad goodbye. And Elijah says, that's fine. And so he does. But when he comes back, 
You see, Elijah found Elisha or encountered Elisha in the middle of Elisha doing what? Plowing a field. When Elisha comes back from kissing his mom and dad goodbye, you know what he does? He slaughters the bulls that were pulling the plow, uses the material of the plow to build an altar to to give a sacrifice to God, essentially declaring he is leaving this life for the one that God has called him to. So Jesus' response here is asking this man, it's not about really going home and kissing mom and dad goodbye. It's about the fact that he's asking to follow somebody who's even greater than Elijah. And the emphasis here is on the plowing. How can a person who is dedicated or says, I'm going to come and plow, how can they plow if they're occupied with other things? I don't know. I don't know how many of you still plow the old-fashioned way. There's a reason we don't let our eight-year-olds plow our gardens for us, right? We got holes everywhere. They're distracted. Oh, there's a bird. And he's saying, look, this job has to get done. And if you're going to be looking around, or as James will say later, the double-minded man gets nothing for God. And as Proverbs tells us, the double man does nothing for God. Let me explain it this way. Jesus is making an offer, as he does many times, that he, if you give up what you have, I promise you will give more back in return. Now, the double-minded man has a struggle with that risk. And so they spend their time speculating, okay, I like having this thing. I like having this dream. I like having this stuff. And I like the idea of having those things. So what if I make this exchange? What if I dedicate myself to following Jesus and I don't get something like that in return? Or they start thinking to themselves, well, you know, Jesus does have something that I need. So what's going to happen if I say no? And so around and around they go and they never actually accomplish anything for the kingdom. Or another way would be this. Have you ever thought about something you should do and then convinced yourself that thinking about it was enough? Maybe you thought to yourself, Mrs. Smith would love a phone call. And she said, oh, that was a good thing to think about. It's a good thing to do. And then you don't do it. Because you thought about it. And you felt good about thinking about it. Maybe you felt the urge to say, you know what, I really should invite that person over for dinner. They really need some encouragement. Maybe I need to give a little bit more to the church. Maybe I should use some of my vacation time to help with some of the upkeep around the church. And then you start thinking, well... I have a lot to do. I might have to, or I might want a vacation somewhere else later. At least I thought about doing it. Those are the thoughts of a double-minded man. I told you at the beginning that my friend who I met at work, who went to Northland, did not end up becoming a missionary to Africa. As I stand here and I thought about it this week, I look back at the times that I knew her, and I can tell you, now I see the evidence as to why. You see, when I, we were all at school together, and all, they were all about the Lord. This person was all about the Lord while they were at North, and they were all about the Lord when they came home for break for those short periods of time. But put her in a situation where she wasn't in the bubble of Northland, and her mind was split about what she should be doing. I've met people who wanted to come to church They wanted to be a Christian, but only because it provided community and business contacts. 
always double-minded. Never really about Jesus. Never doing anything for the kingdom. Now my hope in closing for you is to note that these three encounters are not about creating rules. Believe it or not, I know people who believe that that means you're not supposed to have a bed, you're not supposed to go to funerals, you know, you're, you're, uh, you're not supposed to go home and kiss mom and dad. At least that's not what this is about. This is not about him creating rules about thou shall not have a bed or thou shall not go to your parents' funeral or thou shall not do uh, doubt while you plow. No, what Jesus is doing here is helping us to see that our hearts do not only contain idols, but our heart is a factory of idols. And every idol that comes out of our heart has its own will. And any time you want to start and follow Jesus, make a commitment to him, the first thing one of those idols is going to say is, do you have the money? What about that mistake you made that one time in your life? What if he asks you to do something uncomfortable? What about having to say goodbye to children or parents? What if I have to leave the country? You see, Jesus will bring you face to face with these idols because They'll keep you from setting your face to the calling he has in your life. He's doing this because he, he knows that having and knowing him has always been the goal. And just as Jesus' life was calibrated by his work in the gospel, so must you and I be. Jesus was all about his mission. and We are to be all about his mission. And as Christians, we are called, commissioned, and empowered to do so. Let us count the cost, but let us not be dissuaded from following him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word from your word. And I pray, Father, as we count these costs in our lives, that we would be willing to pay them for the eternal riches we have in you. For you are, Father, our great sense of joy our greatest relationship and the point at which we should be focused. And I pray these things be true about us in every time we face. In Jesus' name, amen.